Chapter Eleven of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter Eleven. Grown suddenly afraid of the night-shrouded plains and the loneliness of the deserted platform, Mem returned to the lights. Through car after car she pushed, seeking her own. She had not kept count of its number. Each car was now a narrow alley of curtains. She was lost on a madly racing comet made up of bedrooms and corridors where men in their underclothes climbed ladders or sat on the edges of their beds, yawning and undressing. Tussled heads leered at her from upper berths or from cubbyholes. She had to squeeze past men and women in bathrobes straggling down the halls. She was frightened. She had never believed such scenes possible. She was panic-stricken at being unable to find her own hiding-place. Her porter was not to be found. At last she met Viva, coming out of a washroom, dressed as if someone had yelled, Fire! Mem felt positively fond of her. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Viva wore a gaudy kimono and kept it close about her, with modesty surprising in view of her photographs. Mem had not learned that artists of Viva's field are no less prudish in private for being so shameless in public. There's safety in numbers. Mem greeted Viva with enthusiasm. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. This must be my car, then? Yes, dearie, said Viva. Was you lost? Your number's number seven. Just this side of mine. Too bad you didn't take a section some big hick got on board whilst you was away and he's asleep up in your attic now this was disconcerting indeed the tenant of mem's sky parlor had left a pair of his shoes in front of her berth and his clothes were visible hanging on a coat hook there was no escape for the girl she had to clamber into her pigeonhole and make the best of it she had the curious feeling that she had crawled under a strange man's bed to spend the night Though no sane burglar would ever have wasted time on a village minister's house, Mem had always looked under her bed for one before she kneeled down to say her prayers. She hoped the man overhead would not take the same precautions. And how was she to kneel down and say her prayers in that aisle? In the berth, she could not even kneel up. This was the first night of her life that she ever omitted the genuflection. She had to pray lying down and she asked the Lord to forgive her this one more sin. She had asked so much forgiveness of late. She wanted to pray also that her letter should deceive and comfort her father, but she dared not ask prosperity for a lie. She dared not ask prosperity for the series of lies she was going to tell. Yet her thoughts and plans must be known up there. Yet, again, if they were known... But it was growing complicated, and she turned her thoughts to other things. Getting out of her clothes and into her nightgown was an experiment in contortion. She was afraid to fall asleep, but there was a drugging monotony in the muffled click-clickety of the wheels, and she soon knew peace and a much-needed oblivion. All night long the train was speeding through Kansas, and the next morning was still in Kansas. Getting dressed was another appalling experience for the girl, and she peeked through her curtains to see what the proper costume was for the sprint to the washroom. Viva was not there to help her, for Viva slept late, and her section was a curtained cabin 
for hours after the rest of the car was made up. The scenery was flat as a pancake, but there was no monotony in it for Mem. Towns and farms and farms and towns, windmills and tree clusters and barns and pigsties were all wonderland to her, and dear, brave people were making their homes there. Setting her watch back an hour just before entering the romantic state of Oklahoma was in itself an exciting experience. The names of the stations were literature, poetry, Archelon, Liberal, Guyman, Texoma, Dalhart, Middlewater, Bravo, Naravisa, Tucumcari, Los Tanos, Tularosa, Almagordo, Turquoise, Grogando, El Paso. She lunched in Kansas, crossed Oklahoma in two hours, entered Texas, dined in New Mexico, and breakfasted again in Texas, went right back into New Mexico, and lunched in Arizona. And what an encyclopedia of scenery she studied! The endless flats of Kansas, with its broad, lazy rivers slouching along their flat beds, the long famine of trees in bald levels, and then the sudden arrival in a morbid, fantastic realm where God had lost his temper or his patience or something and flung everything awry, desert and vast nightmares of rock, as if the landscape had been designed by one of those mad cubists she had read about the day before. But everywhere there were evidences of human pluck, tireless ants fighting the titans for control, weak men who turned chaos to order and tamed the wild regions to dominion. The scenery was such a book of adventure that Mem needed no other diversion. She was grateful for the fact that Viva had one of her sick headaches and did little talking. The heat and dust kept the great Miriam in her drawing-room, and Robina, too. She saw Tom Holby in the dining-car, but he did not speak to her, of course, because she did not speak to him. But she studied him slyly when he was not looking, and she wondered what could make him worth so much money. She had not learned that merchandise is worth just what it will bring in the market, whether the merchandise be ships or shoes or sealing wax, souls or smiles or tears. She felt for this handsome youth the contempt that women feel at times for handsome men. She felt a personal grudge against him because he lived and prospered and won multitudinous loves while her lover lay dead in oblivion. She abominated him for gaining so much wealth, for doing nothing useful. She knew too little of life as yet to realize that beauty and foolish amusement are among the most useful contributions to existence and are not overpaid. There may be some doubt as to the actual benefits and the actual efficiency of most human activities and inventions, including the countless medicines, religions, political expedients, mechanisms of transportation, and other elaborate devices that create new irritations as fast as new conveniences. But beauty that warms the heart and folly that tickles it are as provedly valuable as laughing gas and other anesthetics. In fact, there is more than entomology in the kinship between aesthetics and anesthetics, and both have been denounced as hellish by the godly, Mem spent most of her day planning her second letter home and growing acquainted with that husband of hers. She used Tom Holby as a model, reluctantly, yet for lack of better material. She supposed that writing fiction must be as easy for its manufacturers as spinning webs is for spiders, but constructing character was exhausting work for her. 
Perhaps spiders grow weary, too, and suffer temperamental stringencies. She learned that the author must wrestle with the invisible as Jacob with the angel, and that the angel could dislocate a joint at a touch. Mr. Woodville eluded her maddeningly, and her sketch of him was so inconsistent that her father, when he received her second letter, found in its very befuddlement an evidence that she was losing her wits over the fellow. Dr. Steddon was pleasantly alarmed. Every man is afraid of every man who interests his daughter, yet he wants some man to capture her. The train carried Mem deeper and deeper into the soul of Mr. Woodville, and in the dark hours she spent in her berth, reclining on an elbow and gazing at the incredible landscape, everything unreal grew real, and her mystic bridegroom began to take form and voice, eyes and integrity. She had great trouble with his trader profession. This is always a complication with authors. Most of them, in despair, ignore the matter entirely or give the character some craft with elastic office hours and income. The landscape was an incessant interruption. Just as she was about to settle on something, an amazing butte would slide past her window or a captivating flat-roofed adobe hovel infested with little human cooties of Mexican extraction would delight her. The squalor of foreigners is always picturesque, and it is typical of the artistic mind to find more poetry in an alien garbage heap than in a familiar temple. The desert was beautiful to this girl because it was unusual. Its cruelty was romantic since she had not encountered its monotony. The next day, the train came to an abrupt halt. A driving bar on the engine had broken and dropped. It had torn off the ends of the ties for hundreds of yards before its drag had been noticed by the engineer and the engine stopped. If the train had not been puffing slowly up a steep grade, it would have been derailed and sent rolling like a shot snake. Some of the passengers would probably have been mangled and killed. It was a long while before the passengers found this out, and they reveled in the delight of averted disaster. Mem thought how fitting it would have been for her to have suffered a death so closely akin to Elwood's. There would have been an artistic grandeur in the pattern of their fates. And yet she could not help being glad to be alive. She had ridden a thousand miles and more, spiritually as well as physically, away from Calverley. Nobody knew how long the train would be delayed. All were like people on a ship becalmed in mid-ocean. They could not go on until a new engine was secured. A trainman had to walk to the next block signal tower, miles ahead, and telegraph back for another locomotive. The passengers settled down to hours of deferment, cursing delay and comparing it, not with the speed of the pioneers who agonized across the wilderness, but with the velocity of yesterday's express. Viva and Mem wandered about, looking at the cactus and the sagebrush, and deliciously expecting a rattlesnake under every clump. Viva returned to the car and to sleep, but Mem strolled farther and farther away. She saw Tom Holby set out for a brisk walk. He climbed a ragged butte with astonishing agility, winning the applause of the passengers. He had the knack of acquiring applause. The other passengers dawdled about, but Mem went farther and farther. She wanted to see what was on the other side of that butte, as much as mankind has longed to see the other side of the moon. When she got round, she found that the other side was much like the other side, more desert, more buttes, utter dissimilarity, yet the complete resemblance of chaos to chaos. 
when she started back the cool of the shadow made her rest awhile the heat and the hypnosis of the shimmering sand sea put her asleep in spite of herself she woke with a start the train was moving a new engine dragging it and its broken engine she ran fell picked herself up limped forward she was alone in the wilderness and the train was already a toy running through a gap between two lofty buttes one a grandiose tower of babel the other a deformed and crooked writhen diablerie both mocked the girl unendurably and she stood panting in a suffocation of fright her hands plucking at each other's fingernails which was about as profitable as anything else they could have found to do then for the first time mem understood what the desert meant to those who had seen the last burrow drop and found the canteen full of dry air end of chapter 11 recording by diana bovet